Well, it's good to be with you this morning on this uh, lovely warm day. Um, and we're looking at Romans chapter 8, uh, just read out so well by Eric. Thank you so much, Eric. And uh, we're focusing on Romans 8, verse 15. I think it's page 944 in the Pew Bibles or uh, thereabouts. And you can find it there or on your phone, however you want to follow along in the Bible. Now, I suppose we all know that in every life, a little rain must fall. Uh, Sometimes it feels more like a thunderstorm, doesn't it? And yet while we know um, that this is true for us all, in every life, a little rain must fall, it's hard for us to truly appreciate the challenges of someone else's life. Some examples. Uh, The rich man to the poor man seems immoderately blessed. Nice car, big house. And it's inconsiderably hard for the poor man to understand the pressure the rich man feels to provide for those who work for him or be strategic with his giving to God's work. Sleepless nights, worries, these are the burdens that come with success. But however much a successful woman talks about them, they are invisible to the eyes of the person who jealousy longs for success. The banker finds it hard to truly understand the pressure of the teacher who must find uh, new material to keep the little stinkers engaged for yet another hour as they study trigonometry. Or Jane Austen with a bunch of 16-year-old teenage boys more interested in angry birds on their phone than Mr. Darcy. Pastors, not just me, there are many pastors here this morning in church. Pastors carry their own burdens. Often none but he knows for reasons of confidentiality. And however much he tells them to others in general terms, as Paul did when he speaks of accusations and beatings, and on top of that all the burden for the churches for which he was accountable before the living God. If Jesus healed ten lepers but only one returned, then it's objectively unsurprising that, uh, well, if only one in a thousand returned to give thanks or with a sense of gratitude if only one in ten give thanks for being healed from leprosy by the Lord of glory. Who knows the burdens of a politician? It's easy for you and I to sneer at politicians and little do we understand the pressure of being beholden to all and with every waking moment and every vote minutely dissected by minions like you and I who know next to nothing about the real issues. There are matters about which we do have in common. Um, These days in the news, the pressure we all feel after the fearful events in Paris just last week. But there are innumerable other matters that are individual to each of us. And however much we speak of them, the other cannot truly understand. The mother, whose work at home only seems significant when the women's retreat takes place. And the fathers uh, look after the children for the grand total of a weekend. And they all turn up to church with hair unbrushed and shoes unmatching. 
And with one word silently on their lips, Mummy, wherefore art thou? (laughs) For all these and many other burdens, sicknesses that we dare not mention for the shame we feel, the indignity, the embarrassment of mental health issues. We have, as followers of Jesus, given to us by divine example, a single word that can make all the difference. This then is the message this weekend, how one little word can make all the difference. We will first consider that little word and why it's placed here in this part of Scripture, leaping out of the text in a foreign language, like an iceberg of truth, its tip showing above the waters, but a weight beneath it. And then after we've considered the meaning of this in the context here in this verse, we will consider how that one little word can make all the difference. So first, the one little word. Second, how it can make all the difference. First, the one little word. Well, as we saw last week, and as we heard as it was uh, read by Eric for us just a moment ago in context, Paul was calling the Christian to holiness. And as he finished his call to holiness, he reminded them of the secure attachment that we have. And this gives us the psychological, the spiritual, the real ability to fight for holiness each day. We are loved and sons of the living God, male and female. We have this fixed and established relationship to God, which was true of God's Old Testament people of Israel and is preeminently true of Christ. And now in Christ, as a follower of Christ, is similarly, though not exactly, true also of us. And Paul is now explaining more about this secure attachment. And as he does so, he begins to move us on from his thinking about holiness to build a bridge towards that difficult land of suffering that he will address from verse 18 and that he tips his hat towards at the end of the passage we had read out. And in the middle of all this, there sticks out this strange non-English and non-Greek word, Abba. Not to be confused with the 1970s group with their wide flares. This is the one little word that cannot be brushed over or ignored. Martin Luther uh, described its significance like this. This is only a little word, but it comprehends all things. The mouth speaks not, but the affection of the heart speaks in this way. Even if I am oppressed with anguish and terror on every side and seem to be forsaken and utterly cast away from your presence, yet I am your child and you are my father for Christ's sake. I am beloved because of the beloved. Therefore, this little word, Father, surpasses all the eloquence of the most eloquent orators that ever were in the world. What makes then this word so significant is what it represents. Paul says here, you did not receive a spirit of slavery, but you received the spirit of adoption. 
And Paul uses the word spirit in two slightly different ways in this sentence. Actually, he quite often does this. In 1 Corinthians, he says, We have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given us. Or in uh, 2 Timothy, he says, For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but the spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. So what Paul means here is that when the Old Testament law is received in the wrong way as what justifies you or saves you, it becomes slavery. You cannot keep the law. And that way of trying to be holy does not work. God's Old Testament people went to exile into slavery and clearly then that way of trying to please God, what we call legalism, is the spirit of slavery. Many people still live there. They think Christianity is all just about rules, rules, rules. But by contrast, those who fight against sin out of a secure attachment because of their being sons of God, in a right relationship with God, through grace, by faith, they are not in a spirit of slavery. Instead, they have received the spirit of adoption. They have the Holy Spirit, and by and through the work of the Spirit, they are adopted into God's family. And Paul is now explaining what it means to be sons of God by using language that would have been familiar to his Roman audience. You see, in Roman times, you could be a slave and in a sense do quite well in life. You could be in the professional field, as it were, be a doctor, even hold high civil office. But you were still a slave. You did not have the rights of a son. Well, how is it that we are now sons of God with the full rights of a son? And as Paul will explain later, heirs to the whole fortune of God's eternal bounty. Because we have been adopted. See, in Roman law, the adopted child was a full son in every sense. With all the rights and responsibilities and honor as being fully and completely a member of the family. Irrevocable and unchangeable. By God's Spirit, through the work of Christ on the cross, by grace, through faith, this is now true of us. We are adopted into God's family and have all the rights of the Son. We are a part of God's people now and in Christ have a similar status to his, in him before God. And so this one little word, Abba, represents all of this. It only occurs once, as far as we know, explicitly on the lips of Jesus and only actually in Mark's gospel. Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane. His disciples are sleeping. He's about to go to the cross. This is the most painful moment of Jesus' life. He is alone. He has burdens that none other can understand, none other can share. And he sovereignly knows what is before him, not just the physical pain of the cross, but the spiritual separation from God, taking the hell of sin upon himself that we might have the heaven of glory of being adopted as sons. Jesus is now completely honest in prayer with God the Father while his disciples sleep and dream of matzo balls and Passover delights. 
He will be betrayed and beaten and ridiculed and misrepresented. And his prayer is this prayer to which Paul here alludes. Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Paul references the same prayer also in Galatians. Abba, Father. The word Abba was Aramaic for father. It was the familiar word for father. Not perhaps as familiar as saying dad, as in dad, why can't I go play on the computer for another hour? But more like the familiar daddy or papa. In all languages of which I am aware anyway, there is a family name for father and mother which is very close to the earliest lisping phrase that a child can utter. Mothers and parents in time immemorial have wondered whether the first word of the child is mama or dada or as I heard someone say recently, ball as in basketball. But there is in each language of which I know anyway this remembrance of that first attempt by a child to say their father's or mother's name. And here in Aramaic that word is Abba. In English it is Dada or Daddy. In French it is Papa. It is the word that a child can first say when it looks at its father and it is the little word that we Christians have. To utter when we're faced by the ongoing struggle to be holy or the specific known to us alone struggle of our garden of Gethsemane. A suffering, a burden, a fight against sin or to carry the burden of someone else's sin alone into the night. But God has not left us without a word to utter at such times. Sure, the world will scoff. I mean, you know, how ridiculous that we Christians can call God Abba when we're talking of the great infinity that made all, the one who keeps the countless eons counted and matches the precise dance of the heavens with the music unending to his will and according to his word. Can we not think of something better to call him than Daddy? Well, we have many other words for him too. Almighty, glorious, Prince of Peace, the Eternal One. There are words in other biblical languages for God as well. El Shaddai, Elohim, Yahweh, the great I Am, who is and was and always shall be the Alpha and Omega, the A to Z of all the alphabet of life and existence, eternity. We can match the glorious appendages given to the divine being of the most sophisticated philosophy and actually outdo any attempts to glory in the glorious of any other so-called mysterious religion or spirituality of any part of this relatively small globe by comparison with he who made it all out of nothing. We do not forget any of that when we say Abba. It's all in our mind as we say it. And yet in Christ we can also call this the great one. Daddy. And it's one little word. 
given to us by divine example in that garden of Gethsemane, confirmed to us by apostolic teaching and recorded in the word of God as the word that represents our secure attachment, like an anchor in that storm, like a handle to hold on to when we climb up steep stairs, like an ice pick to drive into the snow when we feel we're slipping into a bottomless crevasse to our doom far below. Abba! We cry. For do not miss that word cry here. It means shout out. Originally, actually, it came from the sound that a raven makes. You can Google at home the noise of a raven. It ain't pretty. A squawk, a loud, throaty rasp. Baba. That's the word we have. It represents who we are in Christ, able to pray as Jesus prayed to God, as our Father. It's an anchor in the storm. First, we have considered one little word. It is unique to the Christian faith. No other religion has it. Spirit of slavery they have. They have fear of ongoing terror of judgment. And we respect God. And we fear him in that sense, the fear that is the foundation of all wisdom to honor and reverence the living God. But we do not have the spirit of slavery. We do not attempt to be justified, saved by keeping the law. The law shows us that we cannot keep it. We're justified by faith in Christ. And so we become sons of God, adopted into his family. And we have a different relationship now with God as our father. And we are given a word. A word that represents that relationship at that when all else fails. When we're in that garden of Gethsemane, as some of you are right now listening to me this moment. And others of you will be tomorrow, though you know it not. And all of us will be at some point as we follow the crucified one. We have a word, a little word, that can make all the difference. First, one little word. Second, how it can make all the difference. Now, obviously... This crying out to God, Abba, is not the whole of a Christian's prayer life. That is a much larger topic which we can barely touch upon. As a church, we have multiple venues for corporate prayer together. We pray together. We meet on Saturday night and Sunday morning as Pastor Ben just prayed, led us in prayer. Once a month, we give over a whole evening service to prayer. We have a weekly meeting for prayer on Wednesday nights when a missionary often talks about their prayer needs and other matters for prayer in the church are prayed for too. We have an e-prayer weekly email notification. We have an evangelism prayer group. We pray as a staff team for the regular prayer requests of the whole congregation. Our small groups have prayer as an integral component in each of their meetings that take place and the thousand or so in small groups. And then too we encourage individual prayer as strongly as we can. One person said, when a, what a man is on his knees, that he is, no more or less. John Wesley famously once remarked that he was so busy that day, he had to spend at least an hour in prayer. Understanding that time in prayer reduces the amount of time needed for other things, because in the mystery of prayer, God answers prayer. I've never regretted time in prayer, only time not in prayer. Prayer can be hard work. 
It's doing the work of church. And it's doing the work of parenting. And it's doing the work of business. A Christian businessman who is very, very successful honestly tells me that he attributes his success to God's blessing. A blessing undeserved and sought through prayer, not through his cleverness. A simple way to begin to develop a personal prayer life is the following. If you have an electronic calendar or on your phone, make a new calendar and call it prayer. Enter into it repeating entries for prayer for your family, for work, for your friends who are Christians, your friends who are not yet Christians, for the church, for your church leaders, for missionaries. Under each of those items, enter in specific names. I find it helpful to have a section called current where I can enter in current matters. As the list continues, I can look back and see when I notice a prayer has been answered. Each of these repeating entries you pray for as you do your devotions, after you do your devotions, you pray. This is what the Bible means by praying without ceasing. It means praying unstopping in a regular pattern of life in the same way that someone has not stopped eating if they eat each day. But this word here is not just a particular kind of prayer. It's a little word that makes all the difference. In the context of prayer, because of our relationship with God, it can be an arrow prayer, a desperate prayer in our garden of Gethsemane. It can be a truth, a word that gives us confidence, a sense of our secure attachment, the love of God that fuels our wholeness and gives us sticking power when the going gets tough. And in particular, as I have studied this little word this week, I think there are four trajectories along which this little word can make all the difference. A tip of the iceberg that reveals all the truth of Scripture packed in by Paul with this highly concentrated reference that requires us knowing our Bibles well to grasp what he is saying, a way to reclaim the fatherhood of God for all his children, whatever their experience of their own human fathers can make all the difference when we face suffering it can make all the difference when we are anxious it can make all the difference when we sense relational friction it can make all the difference when we fear coming judgment when we face suffering this word has an honored precedence in being used by a lord and master in the garden of gethsemane You see, suffering has an unerring ability to strip life down to its most horrible truth. We are naked. We feel betrayed. We are in pain. We see life, if not accurately, at least without rose-tinted spectacles anymore. Now, I do not often. In fact, I think... This is the first time my entire life as a preacher, and I have dozens of boxes of files of sermons now sitting in folders in a corner of my study. I don't think I have ever quoted the radical Paul Tillich approvingly. And those of you who know who Paul Tillich was will not be surprised by that. Sometimes, though, there is gold that we can take out of Egypt. And um, Tillich has this idea. But what suffering does is that it makes us crash to the basement reality of our lives. 
We take the elevator down from the penthouse presidential suite to the moldy basement. They who suffer are taken beneath the routine business of life and they find they are not who they thought they were so often. What is beneath? When you crash through the floor of your marriage, what lies beneath to catch you? When you crash through the floor of a child that you thought would be your pension plan, what is beneath? When you crash through the floor of doing well at school, what is beneath? Beneath, when you crash through the floor of a girlfriend you thought you would marry, what is beneath? When your health goes, what is beneath? One of the first truly global sporting stars of the game of rugby was uh, a man called Jonah Lomu, six foot five and 19 stone, which for those of you who haven't got a master's in translating from English to American is roughly over 260 pounds. And he could do the 100 in well under 11 seconds. He was an extraordinary athlete. He also had kidney disease and died this week at the age of 40. He told how his legs just would no longer do what he told them to do. You are fit and healthy. Now you need a cane or a walker. Or you cannot play basketball because your leg is broken. You crash through the supporting structures. And there you are in that garden of Gethsemane with the disciples, the friends you trusted, snoring near you. What lies in the foundation? For the Christian, the answer is Abba, your father. That doesn't just give you purpose in a career sense. It gives you truth. One mentor of mine once told me that every other person, even his wife, would one day walk off the stage of his life and all that we left would be God. So true. And with this word, there is more. All that is left is your secure attachment to God as your father, whose relationship you can hang on to by crying out, Father. This is one little word that makes all the difference to suffering. It also makes all the difference to anxiety. When Jesus told us to pray, our Father who is in heaven, he almost certainly would have used the word Abba. And in Luke's gospel, when he teaches the disciples this is how they are to pray, he is teaching in the context of Martha's bustling and hurrying around about many things. My grandmother, who is now in glory and was a very godly, strong woman, taught me many things. She taught me how to drive fast. One time, she was over 90, and she took me in her new car, and she said to me, you know, Josh, I've never taken this to 100, shall we try? Which seemed fun, and... She stopped at 90 saying, perhaps we better not. She was a Christ-like woman in many ways, but she worried. One time she said to me that she was worried about how much she was worrying. We have a little word for that too. And it makes all the difference. Would you say now, ye who are worrying about how much you are worrying, Abba. It will put everything else into perspective. It will give proportion to what you are worrying about. Would you lay hold of the one thing that matters more than all the other things and certainly matters more than cooking a perfect turkey dinner? 
your Abba. This little word makes all the difference to relational friction. Into every life, a little rain must fall. And while we are commanded to live at peace with all men, we are given the encouraging qualifier, so long as it lies within your own power. Sometimes there are those with whom we cannot see eye to eye. The great Welsh preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones used to joke that you have to love everyone in the church, but you don't have to like them. People often confuse fellowship with friendship. Friendship is a wonderful gift, but you're not going to be friends with everyone in the church. In fact, sociologically, you can only really have no more than a dozen or so real friends at one time. Not the 20,000 you have on Facebook, but the kind who are like the Cheers TV show and know your name and your life and the kind of man that you would go to war with. Lucky are you if you have two of those, even one in your life. Fellowship, however, is broader and in a way better. It's like being family. I've traveled to different countries like many of you and been with different Christians. And when you're with them, you sense not your friendship but your connection through one Christ to one Father. So when there is relational friction, you can use this one little word and it will make all the difference. You can both call on Abba. You are one, whether you feel like it or not. And there's the kind of oneness that goes beyond feelings. Paul then uses this word in Galatians, that there was no male nor female, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, but all one in Christ. And then he goes on, as adopted in him, we are all able to call on the Abba, the Father God. Finally, it makes all the difference not just to suffering, to show that there is a loving set of arms underneath it all, the truth of the Abba Father who is beneath everything and will never leave us, with whom we have this secure attachment. Not just to relieving us from anxiety by focusing on the Father who will give us today our daily bread. Not just reminding us of our ultimate unity in one Christ through whom we have access to one Father, but also it makes all the difference when we face the fear of judgment. Now in every church, there are some who struggle with whether actually they are still going to hell. And so when a preacher like me talks of judgment, the most common effect is those who really do need to fear hell ignore the warning and those who are in no danger whatsoever take the warning to heart when they should not and so down through the years different theologians have given different remedies for this problem sometimes it is said that the difference between condemnation and conviction is that the devil attempts to accuse us generally and make us feel bad and insecure generally with no specific conviction of a specific sin while the holy spirit convicts us specifically of a specific matter i suspect this is largely speaking true but i have not always found it helpful with people with whom I have talked, for often the general condemnation covers a multiple array of specific things. Others then say that if you ever fear that you've committed the unpardonable sin, then it's a sure sign that you have not. I think this is also certainly true. 
I've seen many things in my life, but I've never yet had someone walk into my study to see me asking whether they are really a Christian or not, who is actually not a Christian. Taking all the effort to see a pastor to talk about the unpardonable sin is about as sure a sign of a soft heart to spiritual things as we're likely to be able to discern in this finite world. It's the people who don't think they have committed it who may have done. Those who think they have, they are safe. But as true as those comments are, and are often given by theologians and pastors, truer still is the complete confidence that Paul gives here in this one little word. So he's been telling us we must fight against sin. It's our responsibility to be holy. We must be active about this in our own lives. He's given us a technique to do that. And he tells us that we have a secure attachment. But how do we know? How do we know that we have that secure attachment? I often, I confess, come home Uh, late at night with well over 2,000 just adults now who are in some way my responsibility before God multiple missionaries over 100 staff depending on how you count them elders and deacons and the Lord knows what other committees meeting in what other blessed rooms a massive budget that must be prayed in each year, a church plant thriving, several buildings we've recently purchased, apparently, a, a satellite established and doing well, books that people want me to write, people to visit, heartbroken to listen to, rejoicing to rejoice with, decisions, decisions, decisions of a complicated leadership kind that I rarely feel I have the wisdom for, and on and on, not to mention preparing a sermon or four every weekend. I also have a family. Last year, my three-year-old made me stop. I was leaving again early one morning, and he was awake uh, that, that day at that time. And he looked at me with a big smile, and he said, See you tomorrow. I've been home too often after his bedtime recently. Now listen, I'm your pastor and I love you all. But it's my children who are going to decide which nursing home I go to. (laughs) Now they're all doing well and they love to see me when I'm there for the dinner hour. You know what happens when dad comes home? Sometimes there are other children there visiting when I arrive, and there's a little group of them, you know, same sort of height, you know, equally liable to poop in the potty, you know. You know, kids, right? And I walk in, and the sound of dad coming home has a certain noise to it. I can actually recognize my own father's footsteps immediately. The garage door goes up. The back door opens. 
there's a crowd of kids. And one looks up, smiles, and runs and says, Daddy, that's mine. And I'm his. Can you say Abba? If you can truly, you are truly his. It's one little word that makes all the difference. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray for those here this morning who cannot yet call you Father. Would you by your spirit sovereignly soften their heart And right now, cause them to call upon you through faith in Christ as their Father. Lord, I pray for those here perhaps who are suffering or have some relational friction or anxiety. Lord, beneath all are your loving fatherly arms we thank you and we praise you in Jesus name Amen